Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast. This is Anna, co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show, every season we explore the intersections of horror film and feminism, looking at a particular trope in depth. And we are spending these couple of months talking about the most elegant and the horniest of movie monsters, the vampire. In each episode, I'm joined by a special guest to dive deep into a vampire movie or two. And in today's one, we've got a jumbo-sized deep dive into one of the most influential vampire films of all time, the big-screen adaptation of Anne Rice's novel, Interview with the Vampire. In case you're not familiar with the story, this 1994 film follows an 18th-century Lord Louis, who is suicidal after the death of his family. He meets charismatic and sadistic vampire Lestat, who persuades him to choose immortality over death and become his companion. Eventually, Louis resolves to leave Lestat, but he guilts him into staying by turning a young girl, Claudia, into a vampire. Starring a trifecta of beautiful men from the 90s as undead soft boys, Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise and Antonio Banderas, as well as a very young Kristen Dunst as Claudia, the Neil Jordan film is a modern classic of enormous influence on subsequent vampire films and gothic fiction. There is a lot to unpack in this film and we try our best. Regrettably, we also cover the attempted sequel to this film, The Queen of the Damned, which amalgamates two Anne Rice books to produce one big new metal mess. The film follows the vampire Lestat after he is awakened after a century-long nap by a band and decides that what he really wants to do is be a rock star. The only salvageable thing about this film is the performance by the late great Aaliyah as the titular Queen of the Damned, Akasha. Comparisons between the two films are inevitable, but I firmly believe that our chat about this film is a lot more entertaining about the film itself. I'm joined in this episode by the savagely brilliant film critic Kelly Weston to dive deep into Interview with the Vampire and talk about what exactly does Queen of the Damned get so wrong. This season is made possible with the support of our friends at Arrow Video, who bring out the very best in cult horror genre films in deluxe definitive home entertainment editions. Throughout the season, we are recommending a film that we love from the vast collection, which now spans more than 500 physical releases. And this week, our pick is another gorgeous gothic horror, and one that's really underappreciated considering the level of talent involved. I'm talking about Guillermo del Toro's Crimson Peak, which is as lush as it is gruesome and kind of got a bad rap upon release, but really, really worth revisiting. With that said, if you're new to the podcast, please know that we discuss the films in detail pretty much from the very beginning. So if you are averse to any chat or potential spoilers, please consider this your spoiler warning. And if you really don't mind about that, then please enjoy our discussion about the cinematic adaptations of the vampires of Anne Rice. Kelly, welcome back. Always a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for having me back. I have no words for <laughs> the excitement that I'm feeling about the conversation that's about to happen. Yeah, I mean, one of these films is gonna be great, and <laughs> the other one, uh, I think it will be funny. It will be really entertaining. So I'm also very excited for this journey that we're about to embark on. 
<laughs> it is it is truly going to be a, a vampiric journey. <laughs> oh my goodness. Both of the films that we're going to be discussing are two very, uh, very different adaptations of Anne Rice novels. And both of these novels, Interview with a Vampire, and Queen of the Damned are part of what uh, of a series of novel of novels and a whole universe that she created through her writing called the Vampire Chronicles. So, before we di- start diving into the film, so overall, how familiar are you with Anne Rice's work and and her Vampire Chronicles in particular? So I am familiar only with the films. I remember um, whenever Queen of the Damned was getting ready to come out. Um, I was at the, at the time a huge fan of Aaliyah, and unfortunately, Aaliyah died about six months after she finished filming um, Queen of the Damned. Um, so uh, I was about twelve years old, I think, and I, I gave it a I gave it a shot. I tried to read Queen of the Damned, um, and I couldn't get into it. And I'm not sure what the issue <laughs> was. Maybe it was just because um, it wasn't like I mean I was a pretty ferocious reader at that age, but um, and I I was reading a lot of gothic fiction, but I I couldn't get into Queen of the Damned. But my credentials are mainly just generally that loving gothic fiction and also because i think at least with interview with the vampire that film and uh, subsequently that you know not subsequently but you know that um the source material sits really interestingly in the female gothic tradition so just to be clear and it'll be good to like get this definition off top mm-hmm. because we'll return to it um female gothic literature is a subgenre that is seemingly quite straightforward it's just you know gothic fiction written by women um i would actually argue that a lot of men have written great female gothic fiction so um one of the earliest vampire stories in fact carmilla was written by um an irish dude um, as they tend to be, apparently, um, Sheridan Le Fenu. And basically, the the genre itself is sort of characterized by young heroines who are generally orphaned, who are trapped in a, in a castle or a haunted mansion of some sort that embodies the patriarchy. And they are also tied either emotionally or by kinship to a paternal figure. But the house is especially interesting because the house um, not only symbolizes the patriarchy, but also really begins a kind of symbolic confrontation with the with the with the maternal, and that is going to be <laughs> really, I think, fascinating because Anne Rice does this thing where she, in ways that are really fascinating but also very flawed, queers that dynamic that. Um, the nuclear family structure, um, and the female Gothic in general. Yeah, I think, you know, we'll return to, I, I, we'll return to, to, to the female Gothic throughout both films, um, because both films are very premised on, I think not coincidentally, upon a kind of confrontation with, with motherhood. Um, so. Yeah, that that is what I'm bringing to this. Not necessarily knowledge of of Anne Rice, but yeah, just a love of this genre. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's much more than enough. Um, so <laughs> let's dig into the first film that we're going to be discussing: "Interview with a Vampire" mm-hmm. from 1994. I want to say we get started. So you want me to tell you the story of my life? I'll tell you my story. I'll tell you all of it. 
I'm flesh and blood, but not human. I haven't been human for 200 years. From the novel by Anne Rice. From Neil Jordan, the director of The Crying Game. I've come to answer your prayers. Life has no meaning anymore, does it? His name is Lestat. But what if I could give it back to you? Pluck out the pain and give you another life. One you could never imagine. I can see you lying on a bed of satin. He chose one man. He gave him infinite power. Eternal life. And a daughter who would be forever young. This is the only real evil left. And then he took the light of day. You're a vampire. You never knew what life was until it ran out in a red gush over your lips. I can't stand this any longer. You made us what we are, didn't you? God kills indiscriminately. And so shall we. Do you like dying? You condemn me to hell! Kirsten Dunst and Christian Slater. Interview with the Vampire. When did you first see this film and how has your relationship with it changed over the years? I first saw this film as a kid. It was actually on television all the time. And and actually, I mean, I don't know if we can mention rival podcasts, but... Um, the podcast Why Our Dads, which is an offshoot of a podcast that we both love and have bonded over, you're wrong about, <laughs> um, <Yes>. is is <laughs> just a, um, love those guys. Shout outs to them <laughs> and the work that they do. They they are talking about a film and they say something like, oh, this film used to play on TBS and TNT just basic cable channels that were always there for you when when you were sick as a kid or mm-hmm. when you didn't want to like face um your peers and so this is what interview with the vampire kind of was for me although often it was not playing during the day it was playing at nighttime but mm-hmm. it was just sort of always on television i think i really related to louis's existential crisis and his obsession with um you know his innate goodness or evilness as a kid who grew up in a really religious household. More recently, because I revisited the film a few years ago, just randomly, and then I rewatched it for this podcast. I think that it is probably one of the more fascinating American horror films of all time. I think it, it you know, when it first came out, it was like, as you say, it's 94. The reviews aren't glowing. They're pretty good. They're generally kind of like, you know, um, reserved praise. Mm. I want to say that that is probably to do with the fact that horror cinema in general is very much like people are, are, are reticent to give it a lot. Um, um, but I, 
yeah, I think it, it's an incredible film. It has its flaws, which we will get into. It's very of its time as well. But yeah, my relationship to it is pretty nostalgic and, and also one of, of great reverence. What about you? I'm cu- curious about your, if that, if I can ask that. <laughs> not others, but I, yeah, I wonder. I mean, I, I love talking to you, Kelly, for many reasons. And one of them is because he always turned it around on me. <laughs> because I know that you love Anne Rice and so yeah mm, love is a strong word for oh. my relationship <laughs> with the literature of Anne Rice uh, I I it might not surprise you I was also uh, a voracious reader as a kid mm. and it particularly gravitated towards horror fiction and I I was trying to think about it I actually cannot remember if I saw the film or read the book first Okay. I think it was probably seeing the film first, to be honest. Mm. But I read a couple of the novels in Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles. I read mm. The Interview with the Vampire, which was her first. I read The Vampire Lestat, Queen of the Damned. And similarly to you, Queen of the Damned was the one that lost me, to be honest. Mm. Uh, I've read a couple of others of her books. I, I, I really enjoyed, I really gravitated towards vampire fiction. I loved the lore. I loved all the different reinterpretations of it. I must admit, a lot of the things 100% pa- went way over my head as a kid when I read the book. I remember it, it's essentially very, very sad and melancholic. And afterwards, I understood why why that was because of the because of the conditions because of Anne Rice's own personal history when she wrote the novel then I I definitely did not read all the massive amounts of queer baiting that goes in in the film when I was a kid I just liked all the all the pretty vampires that's what I counted towards yeah Um, same it has been a film that uh has always been there and I've revisited it over the years since, and mm. it's aged in really interesting ways. Some of the elements of it have aged badly. Some have kind of gained new meaning and new layers. And mm. I always like, I remember it was probably one of the first iterations of a sad vampire, a guilt ridden mm. vampire who was profound and thinking about his own not mortality but his own existence and questioning whether that was the the right way of being and like you mentioned questioning his own goodness questioning his own evil so it was very much an introspective take on on the vampire myth and uh i see this now in retrospect it is basically erotic fiction as well yeah she changed the game because we have we have Anne rice to thank for a lot of you know, some good and some really, really bad <laughs> pastiches. <laughs> she, she is. I, I would lay the responsibility at her foot, <laughs> for her feet, um, for a lot of the the films that we have gotten subsequently. Um, mm. But I'm so interested by this, and and you do mention something that is worth pointing out. You know, is there's you know Anne Rice um, lost her daughter to leukemia. Um, I think either a few years before she wrote Interview with the Vampire. And that is who the character, yeah, yeah, that's who the character of of Claudia, uh, played by Kirsten Dunst, is is based on. Obviously, not unlike ghosts, but in a a very different way, in a far more cynical way, I think vampires become a really interesting channel through which people explore grief. Absolutely. Um, And yeah, we'll we'll get into all of that good stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But yeah, I love that we're both on, on similar um, wavelengths, <laughs> thousands and thousands of miles apart as kids. Yeah, little little ner- vampire nerds in the yeah. libraries. <laughs> <laughs> Where were our friends? <laughs> I mean, don't don't. <laughs> So let's start off by talking about the vampire in mm-hmm. in as kind of portrayed by um well no let's start off talking about the vampire in this cinematic universe mm-hmm. you know how how does she present them what are they like what are their um what's the process behind of becoming a vampire the powers the rules of them existing kind of how is she how is Neil Jordan uh, crafting the vampire in this film. So the vampire transformation, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I do think that this is pretty singular, um, Mm -hmm. is that uh, you go through this uh, prolonged stage of death, and then you're born again, or born into darkness, as as Louis puts it. So it's kind of like a reverse baptism. Mm -hmm. Um, And then their powers tend to be very different. So um, Lestat has the power of telekinesis or he can, he can read minds. Yeah. And Louis isn't necessarily gifted with that power. Um, there's another vampire that shows up played by Stephen Ray later on in the film. Uh, Cause this film is a nineties star who's who <laughs> pot. Oh yeah. Um, and he also can read minds. Hmm. Um, so it it depends. The gifts are are very different, but generally they can move very fast. Mm-hmm. Um, they also, it's important to note, exist outside. You know, for all Louis' like lamentations and obsessions with good and evil, they really exist outside mm-hmm. of Christian concepts of good and evil. They're not afraid of crucifixes. Um, Louis says something like he loves to look at them. Actually, like he goes into churches. They're not afraid of holy water. There's not really a mention of garlic, if I'm mm. not mistaken. Um, they can exist in the, is. in, oh, there, there is? Does he love No, it? there isn't, no. <laughs> oh, there isn't, okay. <laughs> I was just like, did I miss where he was just like, I actually eat spaghetti all the time. <laughs> but, um, yeah, he, so yeah, they, they, they can also exist in fake light. Um, so they can turn the lights on, but they can't, uh, walk during the day. Mm. that will become important later in in queen of the damned but yeah i think that is pretty um significant that you know most of the time louis spins uh as lestat will say in a really funny way because their relationship is i think iconic (laughs) is you know (laughs) louis spends a lot of his time whining about uh you know good and evil and whether he's whether they are damned and um Lestat is is not curious about that at all at least in the film he he and so many other vampires including uh, Armand who's played by Antonio Banderas and we will take some time to spend or oh, I will take a, I will spend some time there there's a whole Antonio Banderas section yes I'm excited <laughs> <laughs> uh Antonio Banderas plays Armand and and he says something that I find so fascinating. I'm I'm now going to like butcher this quote, but he says something like, you know, if there is a hell or you know, if we are damned, you know, I never found it. Like I never I never felt that or you know, it just never mm. um in in all I'm one of the oldest living vampires and I haven't seen it. Um and I do think it's interesting that 
you know, Louis is the, the, his, his birth into darkness begins in 1791, which is a very significant year in, in American history. It's like the year that the Bill of Rights was ratified or certified or something. Um, sorry, uh, <laughs> to my American history teachers, but you know, he is fully American and already you sort of begin to set up these, this, this contrast between the puritanical American national identity and culture and a European far more ancient, far more liberal, far less, I would say, binary um, philosophy of life. Yeah, that was how I, I think the vampire becomes really distinct um, mm. in this film. There's so many fascinating points that you bring up. And I wanted to get in kind of first of all into the relationship between them, specifically between Louis and Lestat to begin with, because the whole film is kind of bookended by this interview that Louis is about to give to mm. a journalist played by Christian Slater. He's unnamed. Yeah. Boy <laughs> journalist is what his boy name is. Boy journalist. <laughs> yes. I mean, he is not a boy. Uh, it, you know... Uh, it's it's well known that that was a role that it was originally due to be played by River Phoenix, and yeah. he tragically passed away before production yeah. began. It's Louis retelling his life story to a person. It's his kind of public acknowledgement and um, his penning down his 200-year-old history as a vampire and pretty much kind of essentially giving away vampire secrets, mm -hmm. uh, which will also become important when we talk about Queen of the Dam. But yeah. Louis is transformed into a vampire by Lestat. And as you described, it couldn't be more different. Lestat is very much a hedonist. Uh, he enjoys the finer things in the undead life. Uh, mm -hmm. He enjoys his status as a vampire. He relishes his powers. And Louis is just whining about everything <laughs> and feeling guilty about every single aspect of being a vampire. Yeah. So... What do you make of their relationship and how it shifts throughout their years together? I mean, this is a good place to to bring in some uh some very fun production notes because originally, famously, Anne Rice did not want Tom Cruise playing Lestat. She was not happy. <laughs> I mean, not happy is an understatement. She yes. fucking hated Tom Cruise as Lestat. She was public she about it as well. <laughs> She was extremely public. She like took out ads in like trade magazines, being like, "This is not my Lestat." Oh my god! It's funny now to think of how she just like you know distanced herself from from mm. that choice. Uh, you know the people that she wanted for it originally because the book came out in seventy six. Like you said, she wanted Alain Delon, who is the the French um movie star who. Has a very bad boy persona, but I think of as a very Tom Cruise like figure in in French society, like a huge movie star and, and with mm -hmm. kind of similar features. Um, she wanted John Malkovich at one point. She wanted Julian Sands, who'd been in a room with a view. She wanted my personal favorite, Jeremy Irons, <laughs> and I, <laughs> I, I and Rice are <laughs> as as. <laughs> Anna knows there's not a podcast I'm on these days where I don't find a way to mention Jeremy <laughs> Listen, but... we've all got problematic base. I'm, I'm, I, I fully respect and embrace the fact that Jeremy Irons is yours. <laughs> he, you know, but you get a kind of portrait of, of what she was looking for, which is, 
you to say somebody who is very European, somebody who mm-hmm. is more more sexually, not even sexually aggressive, you know, but sexually fluid. And mm-hmm. Tom Cruise is not that. Tom Cruise is coming fresh off of like The Firm and A Few Good Men. He's done Top Gun and, um, you know obviously risky business he's a very boyish charm he's not you know he's not very you know masculine in the way that those other actors are even though they're actually not you know the actors that I just named actually they too sort of occupy a weirdly you know transgressive space Mm -hmm. of both feminine and masculine energy which is what the vampire as well sort of symbolizes this kind of like destabilization of, of binaries but Tom Cruise is actually excellent in this film. And she was, she was won by his performance. I don't think of him as, ha- as an actor who has like enormous range, sorry to say, but I do think he's a good actor and he's mm-hmm. great in this. He's incredibly charismatic. Um, and his relationship with Louis is in part so fascinating because, you know, he is clearly the, the dominant partner in in this relationship um i mentioned the female gothic he is the paternal the the patriarchal um force um especially when they begin to when they bring claudia into their family and i think the thing that is really fascinating and 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 really interesting about tom cruise's performance is that he sort of instinctively understands the link between lestat's you know wild charisma and his loneliness, his deep, deep loneliness. And so it's a, it's a really dimensional portrayal of someone who really wants a family, who really wants, wants something to love and to, to give his love to, but is also a deeply flawed figure and, and somebody who is just sort of innately incapable of, of really sympathizing <laughs> with other, <laughs> with other people. Part of what is so funny, but also really tragic about his relationship with Louis is that they have so much love for each other. But he doesn't understand Louis. He's not generous to him. He's not gracious to him. Both Louis and Claudia feel really smothered and suffocated by Lestat's version of love, which is a very fatherly type of love. You know, like when they have Claudia, and we'll get into this a little bit later, it is very much like, you know, he, we're having this baby he and Louis are having mm-hmm. this baby so that he can keep Louis in the, in the dysfunctional marriage. And so it's cute on one level. It's very adorable. They're all very adorable until they are very not. And yeah, mm-hmm. one of the, the ways that, um, what, one of the ways that I mean when I, when I say that Anne Rice sort of queers the female gothic is that, you know, Louis becomes really the female gothic heroine, even before Claudia, mm-hmm. cause, because Claudia, um, is, is, is very distinct and is doing something quite different. But it's Louis who sort of has these, you know, quote unquote traditional female or feminine aspects and that he's very passive. He is the maternal and nurturing, um, parent to Claudia. Um, and he also feels really emotionally tied to Lestat in a way that Claudia does not feel any sort of loyalty or fealty to him at all. Um, it's interesting, again, that in several times, you know, they will burn down structures. Um, Louis will and, and Claudia will as well. They burn down 
Louis burns down the house that he and Lestat are staying in, his house, Louis's house, actually, his plantation home. Um, at mm-hmm. the beginning of the film, they burn down the house again after Claudia kills Lestat, um, or I say kills in quotes. <laughs> um, and then later they burn down the Theatre de Vampires. Um, mm-hmm. But all of these, you know, patriarchal institutions and the structures that embody them keep popping up. They keep having to burn them down. But mm-hmm. burning down a, a, you know, a house is very sort of quintessentially female gothic. I mean, that's what's happening in Jane Eyre. And, you know, there's also a, a an element of, you know, Frankenstein to that Mary Shelley uh Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is is considered science fiction but it's also very quintessentially female gothic because it is you know very thematically about motherhood and ambivalent motherhood and creation and so yeah all that to say is I I think that you know their relationship Louis and Lestat and, and particularly when Claudia comes into it is so endlessly complex and dimensional and really invites all of these very, I think, you know, human ways of, of looking at um, the, the very human failures of a family. You know, they're supernatural, mm. but actually the things that catch them up are very commonplace. <laughs> and, and, you know, just a lack of understanding their chemistry, his, his chemistry, Tom Cruise's chemistry with Brad Pitt is, is excellent in this. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And it's one of those things as well that makes this such a good film to revisit mm-hmm. as uh, throughout the years, because every time you watch it, you kind of gain something different, mm-hmm. uh, especially from the central relationship between Lestat, Louis and Claudia. You've mentioned her a number of times, and it seems like a fitting moment to bring her in. Uh, Claudia, who's their surrogate child, a vampiric child, a child monster, basically, yeah. someone that they sort of birth together in a way because Louis drains her but Lestat is the one that gives her the blood to transform her into a vampire so they've sort of together created this creature and it also is is a sort of immoral act on their part because as they mentioned and it kind of as comes up once they encounter other vampires in Europe it's it's cruel to make a vampire out of a child that small mm-hmm. because you're essentially damning them into a child's body forever. So as they and this becomes kind of Claudia's central internal conflict. She grows up, she becomes a woman, she ages, and she's forever trapped in this child's body. She can never grow up, she can never experience the the full gamut of human relationships. She mm-hmm. she'll never change. She'll always be a kid. And even there, and I think it's it's important to note that it kind of within this within this universe, the vampires remain physically the same the entire time. Yeah. So their hair doesn't change, their nails don't change. Kind of, they will always remain looking exactly the same as they were at the point of their human death. So they will always revert back to it. And Mm. one of the best kind of scenes, in my opinion, of the film is when Claudia rebels and cuts off her hair and it instantly grows back into these sort of doll-like curls. Mm. And this, like, damning her to being unable to change is kind of her great tragedy. But she is, like you mentioned, kind of a a cruel fix to a broken relationship. So, and she's also, you know, you mentioned it before within the knowing the context of Anne Rice having lost her own daughter to to an illness she becomes also this fictional surrogate daughter for the author yeah Um, so what do you make of Claudia the the child vampire (sighs) Claudia is 
in in the word iconic <laughs> in every and perhaps in every single sense she is really the physical embodiment of what it's like for women at this time for a long time really but you know uh she is a woman who you're you're absolutely right is trapped helplessly in a girl's body um any sexual threat that that women and and I mean till to to this day women enduringly sort of um embody a sexual threat in in, mm. in cinema um and obviously a multitude of other spaces but that sexual threat for for Claudia is is neutralized so much of what really makes her grotesque is this you know the fact that she she's so helplessly trapped in a child's body but is clearly you know, feeling or longing and yearning for experiences that are beyond her capabilities. Um, mm. She does have a strange relationship with Louis that is all at once maternal and also kind of incestuous. Yeah. Um, and I, and I, you know, to also just go back to their, the, the making of her uh, as well, you know, it was only un until this film that, you know, I didn't realize that, you know, the making of a vampire is quite often that you have to drink a vampire's blood. And that is how you are, are become a, a vampire. But it is also very, you know, kin to um, breastfeeding. Because mm -hmm. at one point, Claudia's like, I want some, or, well, her first words as a vampire are, I want some more. Um, and she will grow to be... Uh, as Louis notes, a really vicious killer. And the, it's, it's literally her one power. You know, she, the vampire is sort of as a monster and as a symbol, essentially sexual and seductive. You mm. know, she is a natural predator in the way that she, uh, sort of turns her killing into a kind of art form. He, Louis says something like, you know, she killed, she used to kill them quite quickly, but then she learned to play with them. And there's so many of these scenes where, you know, the way that she kills is, is, you know, it's comedic. Um, but it's also very childlike, right? Like she kills the adults in her life who undermine her authority and her agency, <laughs> which is, which is very much like a child, right? You know, if there's an adult in your life and you feel like they are standing in the way of something that I want, like a toy, or they are purposely chastising me, if you have the capabilities of a vampire or a murderer, like certainly, yeah, you would like unleash them <laughs> in that way. You would be <laughs> reckless, um, with your, uh, your powers, you know, to, again, to, to, to go back to like the vampire just traditionally as a, as a general figure, there is a way that they are also, they're, they're almost, um, far more tragic than a, than a ghost figure, which is also sort of, you know, a kind of, um, uh, uh, an expression of, of grief and, and mourning. Um, the vampire really embodies how monstrous it is to, live forever in this way to live forever on the, on this earth. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's a, it's an unnatural state. Um, and so, you know, I can't imagine or, or speak for Anne Rice or what she would have been feeling while she was writing this book and, and working through losing her at the time, I think her only daughter, but yeah, you, it, it really becomes a, um, Claudia becomes this an incredibly, um, powerful and I think really singular, figure in this context especially because one of the things that she um 
or her character really gets at is just how how ultimately oppressive this condition is what what a prison it is i mean we don't really uh from from louis's point of view and, and his perspective it seems i suppose at the outset like this is the perfect way to to be a vampire he's an adult um he has all of these things at his disposal you know he is beautiful and charming and seductive and he doesn't find the same kind of because you pointed this out earlier, you know, he doesn't find the pleasure in it that Lestat does. But Claudia really um, emblematizes how awful it is. And when he's confronted with her, I think he, it just really compounds his guilt and what he's feeling. I mean, as mm-hmm. an audience member, if it's not, you know, because Louis is telling the story and then at the end, jumping ahead a little bit, the Christian Slater character is like, I want to be made a vampire. And yeah. Brad Pitt has this great line reading where he's just like, Jesus, I failed again. <laughs> and he, it's just, you know, I, it, it, it I mean, the soft boy energy. Of yeah, Louis it's literally is, <laughs> unmatched, honestly. <laughs> Just to reiterate, you know, I think Claudia really establishes what a monstrous condition this is in a way that Louis and Lestat don't really make clear. And yeah, it's it's obviously very interesting that she's designed by these two fathers as this non-sexually threatening, helpless woman figure. Yeah, and it's and I wanted to point out as well when you kind of mention Louis failing with the boy journalist, Mm -hmm. he also when Claudia essentially breaks up with him when Mm. she chooses another surrogate mother and she makes him she doesn't even have the ability as a vampire to make another vampire that's how limited she is right that she can't even procreate which Mm. seems fitting even even kind of in her vampiric state she makes Louis make her a new vampire mother essentially a new companion and that really severs their relationship because he is so guilt-ridden throughout his entire existence by his by his state by his Mm. vampiric state that making another creature like himself despite him being desperately lonely Mm. despite him really desperately trying to find other vampires to connect with he does not want to quote-unquote procreate and being forced by claudia forced is a strong word but you know what i mean in in this context being asked by her to create another one of their kind just severs their relationship completely he cannot it's like the worst thing that she could have possibly asked of him because she she sort of forces him to do something that is incestual but by proxy like you Mm. know they together they do create another human so it is a sort of implicitly sexual act and it is Mm -hmm. it is like a really heartbreaking scene you know because she has her like he's like lying on the balcony and she has her arms around him and yeah he he is essentially breaking up with her but at this point he has met armand so they are in another kind of menage a trois situation is this the right time to bring in the Antonio Banderas section, Kelly? I think it is. <laughs> I think it's time. <laughs> Let's discuss the powerhouse casting uh, of this fucking film. <laughs> because... Where is their Oscar? Where is that casting director's Oscar? <laughs> Let's give this person all the glory. <laughs> like, bless them. The amount of 
just male beauty in this film. Oh my goodness. I mean, a brief, brief, a brief note, even before we get into Antonio Banderas. Brad Pitt is at his peak beauty. I mean, he's still an incredibly gorgeous man, you know, not Mm -hmm. to be ageist or anything. He looks very good now. But he is so handsome and stunning with the long hair, which he, like, gratuitous gratuitously flips back <laughs> quite often <laughs> in the film. There are a lot of shots of his hair just sort of flowing in the wind. <laughs> um, also, he's so sad in this, and I love a sad boy. We love soft boys. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's speak so for yourself, miserable. I- <laughs> okay, I love a sad boy. I love a miserable <laughs> man. <laughs> it's like, mm, do you no. need to be nurtured? <laughs> I'm very to- much teamless sad. <laughs> Oh my goodness. No, I I love Louis. I love a man who is is pondering about, uh, you know, it's been 200 years, Louis. Stop pondering. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I I love that we diverge here. (laughs) I think the expressions when we talk are just chef's kiss. But. You, I, I find it really interesting that like this film, which is based on this kind of gothic, vampiric, quite sad, melancholic novel, mm-hmm. is just cast three male leads at the peak of their beauty, at the peak yeah. of their charisma. You know, Antonio Banderas was a rising star in Hollywood, mm-hmm. and it's it, you know, it, it's not to be dismissed. He was uh, a foreigner. He was a Spaniard in Hollywood. Yeah, and. Uh, I think Tom Cruise as well is not necessarily my cup of tea, but he's a, he's a great film star. He's a fantastic film star. And he, I would have not thought at the time on paper that this casting would have worked, but his sheer charisma mm-hmm. and his, the, the vibe and the power and the cheek that he brings to the role of Lestat as well. He's not really, a face that I would place in in a period setting at yeah. all. He's got like yeah. quite a an eighties and nineties like a contemporary energy about him and a contemporary type of um of attractiveness. Yeah, but they work off of each other so well, just visually speaking, and um obviously in terms of their on screen uh on screen uh, chemistry as well. Yeah, let's then and the and this Banderas o'clock. Uh, <laughs> okay, so let's see. Let's use Armand to discuss the way that this. Uh, <laughs> I don't think we should be around the bush about it. Like this is all about the romantic relationship between these three male vampires, right? Even though we are not given a single ounce Man. of anything, not a kiss. It's so barely a hug. Nothing. It's, it's mm. you know. I remembered this film. Before I before I rewatched it for this, I remembered it as being so much more muted about mm-hmm. the gay stuff, and then yeah. I was pleasantly surprised when I watched it, and I was like, "Oh, actually, they don't shy away from it a lot." You know, at least they are. At least Antonio and Brad Pitt are openly discussing the fact that they are feeling each other, and they are thinking about possibly running away together. And this mm-hmm. is what. We need it, but obviously, you know, it's a dark tragedy, so we never get that, you know, happy ending for them. But 
we could still at least have gotten a kiss. They give, they have an almost kiss, which I think is like, well, it's very, it, to me, it's, it's really hot and, and that has everything to do with the energy between Antonio Banderas and Brad Pitt. Mm-hmm. But I think it's so silly. It, it, it really is glaring that, you know, and I, obviously it's 1994. However, Antonio Banderas is coming from several critically acclaimed, uh, collaborations with Pedro Almodovar in mm-hmm. which he is often playing a character who, you know, is in some way queer. And I mean, he it literally like, you know, I, I actually spoke about this, um, for another podcast recently, you know, he is not, nor do I think he should be any sort of like queer or, or, you know, gay icon because he himself, as far as I know, has never identified as, as queer, but he still is so, you know, his, his performances are so, uh, and I hate to, you know, like give him a pat on the back for doing like the bare minimum, right? But like really, uh, bold and generous and really, I think very unselfconscious for mm-hmm. men at that time, you know, cause I mean, you know, we should say like when he was in these El Madaverse film, films, this is like the 1980s, you know, the AIDS crisis is going on. There's still such a, a stigma to being gay um, mm-hmm. worldwide, but also especially obviously in America. So, yeah, I really think that, you know, Antonio Banderas it is is himself very much aware of that that legacy that he's bringing to this film. And I'm almost certain that the directors are as well, you know, even if you couldn't count on audiences, maybe having as much access as we do now to, you know, quote unquote, foreign films, American audiences, that is. Mm. Um, But it is so disappointing and frustrating that that relationship is not explored. Those relationships between Lestat and Louis and um, Louis and Armand, are, they're not explored ever physically, literally yeah. physically. I mean, they rarely touch each other. There's that one scene of, of Armand and Louis almost kissing. And mm-hmm. we're meant to be satisfied with that. I'm not. I'm not I'm happy. Not. I am I'm not. not I would it. like a refund, please. And yeah. Like deleted scenes. Uh, but you do, I wanted to pick you up on a couple of things because I think Antonio is such a fascinating star mm-hmm. because he, you're right, he started off in, he's Spanish and he started off kind of making films with Pedro Almodovar and one of the the kind of, I think their best collaborations, they've mm-hmm. collaborated a whole bunch together, is The Law of Desire where he yes. plays um uh, a, a very I mean he plays a gay man and he plays an obsessive gay man and he's mm-hmm. you know he's also played uh, straight men in Almodovar's films mm-hmm. notably in Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown yes. and then in has a very dark role in The Skin I Live In which yeah. is you know their kind of big re-collaboration a few years ago mm-hmm. but he is interesting because when he moved to Hollywood and he's also the lead in Almodovar's Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down, which yes. he plays against Victoria Beale. Again, My an favorite. unhinged fan. Yeah. Great film. And that also was, I think, one of the things that broke him through perhaps to American audiences because that film got an X rating in the States. Mm-hmm. And there was a big hubbub about that. And there was a big campaign about trying to overturn that because at that point, Almodovar was already like very established as mm-hmm. a as a really powerful new voice in mm-hmm. in art house and European cinema. 
he'd had a massive breakthrough with yeah. Women on the Verge of the Nervous Breakdown a few years before that. So he's a really interesting actor because he was both extremely um, sexualized and kind of positioned as a Latin lover type mm-hmm. star mm-hmm. for the for the American audience. And at the same time was totally unafraid, both because of his... Uh, previous roles and the roles that catapulted him to stardom yeah and and the roles that he took when he was in hollywood let's not forget that he had played a a very small but supporting role as tom hanks's lover in philadelphia just a few years before this film came out Mm -hmm. so he was not at all shy or um afraid of playing queer roles yeah at all and i think he shouldn't like you know yeah like you say you know we shouldn't pat him on the back but i think there is an element of him being like quite a a traditionally beautiful kind of very traditionally spanish looking young actor who is is essentially going into a completely new world he could barely speak english when he arrived in hollywood and kind of had to learn his lines phonetically and all that stuff Mm -hmm. Trying to both play these like very nuanced, often queer roles, and at the same time being positioned as a sort of Rudy Valentino-esque Latin lover, just like mm-hmm. look at him and just look at him dance and look at him flip his hair. And yes, he's gorgeous, but he is such a fearless actor. And I think he leans into the queerness of of the relationship between Armand and Louis so much more than than Brad Pitt does. I don't think yeah. he was unaware. I don't think he was necessarily afraid of it in any way, but Antonio plays it so knowingly. Yeah. He I think he really, really leans into it. And I think there is it's because of kind of his intensity on screen and especially mm-hmm. his longing and his desire to be with Louis that really lights a particular spark in the in the chemistry between them on screen. And also kind of gives Armand, who I think is not as developed a character in the mm-hmm. film as he is in the books, uh, a bit more incentive because there is a slight, there's a potentially kind of quite a dark reading of him. It's like, is he the one who's sort of allowing the other vampires to murder Claudia because he wants to get rid of her so he can he can be that that person for Louis now? Yeah. Um. There's There's ways of kind of going into it, but they, I think he leans into into the the gay the gay relationship between them so much more and so much more openly than any of the other two leads i agree completely and i and i think that you know we could do an entire episode uh reevaluating antonio banderas's career because he is so (laughs) underrated and so underestimated i think because i think he's an incredible actor he recently just reunited with um pedro almodovar for pain and glory where again he is playing well he's playing almodovar but he's playing you know a gay director um Mm -hmm. coming toward perhaps the end of his life and you know at the end of his career that performance too is so quietly understated, but full of so many layers. Um, I almost can't even like articulate just what a, yeah, what a really complex and, and multivalent performance he gives. Um, which is in a, in a kind of ode to the man who, um, launched his career. But yeah, anyway, I think you're, you're absolutely right. Antonio is, is, it, in part, you know, it is because of, I think, his, him having played characters like that before, characters who, not just, and by that I don't just mean, you know, characters who are gay, but characters who are thwarted in love, 
Um, these are not the kind of actor, <laughs> the kind of characters that Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise are playing in a much more American vein. These are like, you know, all American men and, and they are very much leaning into a particular kind of not necessarily aggressive masculinity, but still certainly that I think it, something that I think is, is very, um, um, masculinist <laughs> in, in, a, in American identity. It's clear that, yeah, Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise are going to be much more repressed in their portrayals. Um, but yeah, I find Armand to be, and, and <laughs> perhaps we, we will touch on this lightly because he does appear in Queen of the Damned. And it is <laughs> disrespectful. No one else can. I just want to describe your face for the people who can't see it. It's just your face fell. <laughs> you bowed your head. It's really disrespectful to the work that Antonio Banderas put in and what they do to him. What do they do to the character of Armand and Queen of the Damned? I will not have my Spanish king disrespected like this. <laughs> Spanish King. I mean, we, you know, obviously we love Antonio Banderas, but you're, you're absolutely right. He gives Armand so much more um, interiority than the writing does. And mm. you also feel for him. I mean, there's a way that that character becomes so much more sinister. Um, mm. And actually, you know, Antonio Banderas plays it the way you would play the prospective lover who knows that the love, the per, the person that he's falling in love with is un, deeply unhappy and feels that he can probably make that person happier. And he doesn't do anything to, you know, hasten perhaps the death of mm. Claudia, but he also doesn't step in and, and stop it when he could. And when Louis yeah. calls for him to stop it. So yeah, that, you know, we have to give props to him because it's such a small part. I remember it, it being so significant to me as a kid. And then, mm. you know, in later years realizing, oh, actually, his part is not that big at all. Like, he doesn't really, um, you know, he appears later in the film and then, you know, is very unceremoniously dismissed. Yeah. And you know what actually happens to him? And I realized this only rewatching this with yeah. uh, the hindsight of life experience. <laughs> he he gets, I'm not ready for a relationship. Yes! Oh my me. God! Yes, he does! <laughs> yes, he does! It's devastating. <laughs> he gets the, I just got out of a long-term relationship and I'm not really ready to like start again. Like maybe we could do something casual. Like it's so, maybe we could hang out. But yeah, let's hang out. Let's like just see where this goes. Like let's not put any labels on it just yet. You're really great, but yeah. I'm just, I'm just going through a lot right now. I'm not ready. Right. Because I've literally just burned i oh. just saw my child slash wife get burnt alive <laughs> i burned my other husband i'm like i need to reevaluate things louis has but a we lot of baggage yeah he does he does he's just like yeah he's like we can we can be friends um and he does say something to him that i think is actually quite it's actually a very good line i don't know how how intuitive it is or or how much it is much it's, it's about his own unwillingness to start a new serious relationship, vampire relationship with somebody. But, you know, Brad Pitt says to him, Louis says to Armand when they're saying goodbye to each other is that, you know, 
I can't, I can't make you alive. Like you're, you're dead. I can only, you know, excite you or hasten your breath or Mm -hmm. something like that, which is a very sexual line and probably the most sexualized thing they say to each other. Um, because Mm -hmm. their sort of romantic dialogue is very much, you know, yeah, let's like run away together. Let's like hang out and be intellectual together. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's just like um, be sapiosexual together. Yeah. <laughs> um, no. Yeah, it's right. <laughs> right. We know that you want to have sex, and we think you should have sex because you're great together. Bye. You are dead, and you want me to quicken you once more. And as much as your invitation might appeal to me, I must regretfully decline. Just to reiterate, our Spanish king does not deserve the disrespect he doesn't yeah he armand actually does deserve better he gets (laughs) fuck void by louis (laughs) i wanted to to move on to something that you kind of alluded to when when talking about the difference between these american vampires Mm. and the european vampires that they meet in paris notably armand but also I I'm misremembering his name now, but the the kind of the jester vampire that's played by Stephen Rea. Yeah. What do you think kind of the role of the the cities where the action of Interview of the Vampire takes place? So we we start in New well, well technically we start in San Francisco, but we mm-hmm. kind of really that's the bookend. We really start in New Orleans, and then we move to Paris, and there's a kind of a, a very beautiful gothy montage of them traveling around the world, but we don't really experience those those cities. What role do you think those cities and those settings play? I mean, I think it's interesting that that all of those cities, New Orleans, pa- Paris, San Francisco, are not just metropolitan, but really bohemian cities that are known for being locations where the rules are, you, you can be more sexually fluid there. Mm. Um, and in New Orleans in particular, you know, uh, it's not just that there was a much more sexually fluid culture, but um, there was also a more racially fluid culture. You know, I think we sort of h- suggested this or hinted at it beforehand, but the vampire um, is is a kind of, is a very naturally destabilizing figure in that it sort of embodies all of these transgressive or, um, I suppose, conventional rules of uh, sexuality. And so what in part these cities really, I think, give back to these characters, particularly in Interview with the Vampire, where they are on a kind of pilgrimage to um, map their origins. Mm-hmm. They go back to Paris because I think Louis said, Louis is Creole, actually, but he, he you know, wants to go back to Paris because this is where his forefathers are to him. Mm-hmm. And... He also, at one point, very early in the film, get kind of perks up when Lestat says that he's from Paris. You know, he's been mm-hmm. super miserable. And then Lestat mentions Paris, and all of a sudden, Louis is like, Paris? <laughs> um, which is, I think, very American of Louis. But <laughs> uh, um, yeah, they, they go back, they go to these cities, and, and 
you know, Louis has relocated to San Francisco. It It is interesting that, you know, he doesn't choose to live in uh, someplace like, you know, New York um, or mm-hmm. L.A. Like, I think it is very pointed that it's San Francisco as opposed to some of these other equally, you know, metropolitan cities. Mm-hmm. I wonder how much the book and by in that vein, you know, how much the, the source material itself is actually co-signing those places because ultimately Louis isn't much happier. You know, he's able to live there, I suppose, mm-hmm. in relative comfort. But at the end of the day, you know, there that pilgrimage is, is is a failure. You know, he loses his daughter. He goes searching for his heritage and he loses, mm-hmm. you know, his scion. So, yeah, I mean, I, I find it to be personally like a really interesting subtext like a really interesting dimension of the Mm -hmm. film that that those are the places that they choose but I also would argue like you know just as those places despite being um extremely progressive don't appear to offer any more of a of a more full life for Louis who is still by the end of Mm -hmm. the film is extremely lonely character for a film that is so uh that so attends to you know stifling feminine condition through Louis mm-hmm. and also through Claudia you know Claudia is destroyed there are really like no women characters really survive this film right and that reappears in Queen of the Damned but you know it's a it it that to me becomes um i think really interesting because yeah in every in every single way um any sort of uh, revolutionary or radical act is still thwarted at the end of the day. Mm. It's interesting that you mentioned that Louis does end up just as miserable as he started mm-hmm. off. I do wonder if it's his own version of um, of self-flagellation, of him mm. punishing himself because he is this monster amongst the living and everyone who he has loved except Armand, as far mm. as we know, uh, has ended up dead and violently dead as well. Mm. his whole existence is predicated on violence against human beings as well he Mm. should be by himself and it's interesting that the only joy that we really see louis experience is when he goes to the movies when he talks about reconnecting being able to see the sunrise and the sunset being able to see it in black and white and first being able to see it in technicolor later and kind of living vicariously through art and always by himself and I'm thinking now kind of as I was listening to you speak whether, and I don't know if this was the intention, but I wonder if the act of getting this journalist to write down his story is almost a suicide note. Yeah, I haven't, I didn't think about that at all, but it does seem like that. And, and, you know, their conversation ends quite abruptly when the boy journalist is like, mm-hmm. I want you to make me into a vampire. And Louis realizes, yeah, I, again, <laughs> you know, I have failed, but also I think we do tend to overstate the effectiveness of films and, and what films can do. So that is an interesting just juxtaposition because we're in this industry, but there is always, you know, a lot of talk about, you know, how film can open up your horizons and, and cause you to relate mm. to people that you don't even know. And um, actually, a lot of cinema is about seduction. And a lot of it is is about aesthetics. When Louis tells his story, obviously, he's hoping to convey, 
you know, what he has lost in the fire, literally. Mm. And that is not what the boy journalist takes away from it. What he takes away from it is the art of it, is the beauty. The, and, and it, you know, it is not a mistake that vampires are so, you know, outwardly beautiful and then, you know, turn mm-hmm. into these grotesque monsters. So he's really sort of blinded by this glamour. Uh, Louis mm-hmm. is in a great position to enjoy cinema and also understand it on a really instinctive level, you know, what's mm-hmm. underneath that glamour. And I, yeah, I really appreciated that at the end because it's also something that you, do, you it's, it's a thing that you easily forget about when you think of, of this film, which is so, or has so many more seemingly significant themes. Um, but actually mm-hmm. that bit near the end where he's watching Nosferatu and Dracula and, you know, and, and Gone with the Wind, I think is just, yeah, a random... <laughs> I think that's this. I think that's and that Superman, shot. Richard Donner, Superman. Superman, as well. yeah. It's it's there is something about that that is incredibly emotional for me. I want us to talk a, a lot more about Lestat, but I think we can we can bring that in when we talk about Queen of the Damned. Yeah, <laughs> because the comparison will be inevitable. But yeah. before we move on to that film, what would you say has been its influence on vampire films since it was released well definitely the sad boy you know from this film emerged the soft boy vampire earlier (laughs) i mentioned you know that we have Anne rice to thank for a lot of things some of them good and some Mm. of them bad and when i say bad i do mean twilight and i do think (laughs) that that is a film that are books as well you know books that were turned into films that have a direct can can trace their origins to uh interview with a vampire but that is really important right because before Anne Rice and I'm certain there are obviously you know um she has her own influences and and she's not the first person to do this probably but the vampire in Anne Rice's films can not just experience you know it, it's not just a seduct- seductive figure they also experience, you know, human emotions like loneliness and despair and, and des- desperation, depression. Um, there's a lot of alliteration there, but I didn't mean to do <laughs> that. But, it works. you know, thank you. These, these vampires are so much more human, um, than they are monstrous. You know, part of what made the vampire beforehand so, you know, extremely, uh, charismatic was that they were kind of superhuman. They were, they were beautiful, mm-hmm. strong, fast, and they didn't feel emotions. They were not hampered by those little things <laughs> like, you know, um, you know, being in love with somebody who cannot mm-hmm. love you back in the way that you need. And she gives them, I, I don't think it's a mistake that, you know, uh, Anne Rice as a woman who was writing this book and, and probably a really e- emotional time in her life. Um, mm-hmm. was able to give these vampires so much dimensionality. I think that's a really beautiful way to to think about it and mm. about its its legacy. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely spot on. It's it's a film that really really prioritizes the interior life of the vampire as opposed to their prowess, mm. their powers, or even their killings. Yeah. Um. Even though it's it's. It is a horror film. It's 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 unsettling. It's not. There's a lot of blood. There's a lot of violence in it. Uh, there's a, a couple of particularly vicious scenes, mm. especially with Lestat, which I think yeah. work really really well 
to to remind us that even though we're kind of following these sad, morose vampires through the centuries, they are still killers. Mm. And Lestat in particular and Claudia as well are completely unfeeling Mm -hmm. towards human beings. Lestat is also viciously, always viciously mocks them. And I'm thinking in particular of of the scene where he literally dances around with the corpse of Claudia of Claudia's mother, Mm. who has passed away from the plague or consumption or kind of um, a a virus that's going around there. Also, the scene with the with the sex worker, where he literally bites her, bleeds her, and then makes her believe that she's dead by locking her in a coffin. And it's it's I think it's probably one of the most violent scenes in the film and. The portrayal, the per- the performance by Tom Cruise in that is also, I think, something that's quite stunning, especially for someone like him who is, you know, we haven't talked about him that much, but it is interesting to think about the viciousness of Lestat in the context of Tom Cruise's career because mm-hmm. he is very much an old school Hollywood star. Yeah. Probably right now one of the last remaining Hollywood stars. Yeah. And, you know, likability for leading men and leading women is is a very important metric. They must be liked by the audience. They must be connected to a particular type of character, to a righteous type of character. And like you mentioned before, Tom Cruise has this kind of very 80s, very all-American boy persona around him. And he leaned into it very savvily and made a huge, tremendous career based off of that. So him portraying this hedonistic, very obviously queer, but not explicitly so, character who enjoys torturing and and murdering and eating people with just sheer joy is mm-hmm. is still kind of transgressive to see even now like years after this performance it's a really radical outlier in his filmography because mm. you know as we were saying um you know he has been in all of these films where he's playing he he was the it boy he was a, you know like an all american kind of boy scout his persona mm-hmm. was very cocky but still at the end of the day you know yeah. a wholesome uh image of american masculinity this is still the most i would say interesting performance that he's ever given it's the most interesting role he's ever had and, and easily his best performance ever. And he does really relish it. So, you know, you have to to wonder, and I'm not making any sort of judgments about what's going on with Tom Cruise these days, but, you know, he clearly then moved away from that and went on to do more boyish role. Well, I guess not boyish, but he became an action star. So he, mm-hmm. he traded one cultural archetype for another. But yeah, it is, it's such an interesting blip and, and his, his performance as Lestat really overshadows any performance that would ever <laughs> come after. Obviously, we're going to talk about one, but it is today still the way that it's talked about, you know, mm. is reverent. And I, I think it deserves yeah. that. I absolutely agree. And since we're on the subject of Lestat and expectations and performances, (laughs) seems like a fitting moment to move on to the second film that we're going to be discussing today, Queen of the Damned from... (laughs) (laughs) Let me do my segue, Kelly. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) 
Let's move on to Queen of the Damned from 2002. From an endless night, he will rise to seduce the world. I am the vampire Lestat. Shadows for centuries. It's time to share myself with the world. Let me show you what it means to live in the light. In his lust for mortal power, he will awaken an immortal evil. She's Patricia. The queen of the damned. That will turn the undead. She chose me. Against each other. She has no respect for anything except for the taste of blood. Human and immortal alike. In a war to possess our souls. What have you done, Lestat? From Anne Rice. Best-selling author of Interview with a Vampire. Directed by Michael Reimer. Queen of the Damned. Come out, come out, wherever you are. I mean, uh, it's. Uh, are we gonna agree that it is not a good film? It's a terrible movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's really bad. <laughs> it's really bad, and I knew that like five minutes in. Mm-hmm. I remember that I had tried to. I think I have watched this film. It's in its entirety, mm-hmm. but certainly not in any with any sort of real engagement. And then just mm-hmm. rewatching it, I was just like, I don't remember any of this, and it's actually worse than I remember. Like it's not. <laughs> it's not one of those films where it's just like, oh, we were kind of like really overstating overstating it in the shadow of a film that is well loved. No, it's just a bad movie. No, it's real bad. It's real bad. I have no doubt that our conversation about it is going to be great. (laughs) It's going to be excellent. (laughs) Where to begin? (laughs) Let's begin with the expectations placed Mm -hmm. in this film, because it does seem bizarre that after the success uh, of Interview with a Vampire in 1994, a Mm -hmm. sequel did not materialize until the early 2000s. Yeah. At which point... There is no way that any of the of the original cast members or anyone could be involved in in this project. What do you think about the weight of expectations that's placed on this film? If I'm not mistaken, they did try in the immediate aftermath, or they had planned to do a sequel 
And it just mm. never came to fruition for whatever reason. Um, certainly it must have to do with scheduling conflicts. Right after this film, Brad Pitt, you know, who had always been a really in demand actor ever since Thelma and Louise and had acted before Thelma and Louise, but that was his breakthrough. But Brad Pitt mm-hmm. became like a bona fide movie star. He had like sleepers, seven, mm-hmm. um, he went on to star in the noted uh, Meet Joe Black <laughs> at the end of this decade. So he, you know, but he had a good, generally had a good rest of the year. Obviously, I'm being sarcastic about Meet Joe Black, which is another terrible film. But um, yeah, they, they tried. And and this is a case, and, and very clearly to me, a case of, you know, the rights are running out or whatever. And so they had mm-hmm. to rush to get this. They, they were rushing to get this done. And it, every single actor in this film is miscast and I think that is in part due to haste you know I you know I actually I take that back because Aaliyah is fine and I think that you can also keep Lena Olin but it's clear that you know the writing isn't there that for the most part all of these other actors are sort of just like thrown together it's filmed Mm -hmm. it's the director is Australian it's filmed mainly in in Melbourne I think and um yeah, you have all of these uh, Australian actors who are playing these very iconic roles but don't really have a lot of lines. So it seems that they just were like, let's hire this person to like stand in the background and we'll call them Armand because that is who is playing <laughs> Armand. Some man. <laughs> and it makes the no sense. disrespect. It's gross. It's outrageous. I'm upset and I was upset about it. I literally screamed because I, I almost, I forgot. Yeah, Armand is actually in this film, played by someone who looks nothing like Antonio Banderas, has none of the same energy, nothing, nothing, nothing. It's just he, it, this man was, he walked in and they were like, you're hired. <laughs> we have to get these rights. <laughs> we have to film this. He's not even hot. No, not in, the disrespect. Not in any mm. level. I mean, He's just some man <laughs> off the streets. <laughs> and yeah, it's disrespectful to what Antonio, the, the labor that Antonio Banderas put in. So from some man in the background <laughs> disrespecting Antonio Banderas to some man at the forefront, Good let's gracious. discuss Stuart Townsend's <laughs> The Vampire Lestat. So Thoughts, opinions, comparisons to Tom Immediately as, as we were... Uh, as we both watched this, we were texting and yeah, we both real had the, had the, you know, realization that what he's going for is very Brandon Lee and the crow. And probably that's the aesthetic that the director and the filmmakers were going for as well. It's not good. So it's disrespectful to two people. It's disrespectful to Tom Cruise as Lestat, who also put in work and who, as we say, this is his, this is Tom Cruise's best performance. And, you know, <laughs> if you're going to follow up Tom Cruise, at least have, you know, the take, take it seriously is all I'm asking. And Stuart Townsend does not do that, in my opinion. This performance turns me off so much because. It is so self-conscious. It's so, you know, I am trying to be sexy and it's very smug. There is also something about it that is just, I find very creepy. 
Yeah, like there's a, maybe it's just like there's a lot of neck acting in here. Like, you know, there's a lot of people doing things with their neck. I don't know if that was something that stood out to you, but it stood out to me. <laughs> Everybody's doing like some weird neck thing in this. So yeah, it may, it's quite like snake-like. And so, yeah, there's something about it that really just doesn't sit well with me, like his mm. entire aura. But I feel like you said you had a, you have a revelation for me and for this podcast about this film. <laughs> The revelation will come in a bit, but oh, to stick on to stick on Stuart Townsend for yeah. a bit, I, I have no idea what you're talking about when you say <laughs> neck acting. I thought there was a lot of lip acting, oh. like there was a lot of quivering lips and oh, a lot yeah. of parting of the lips, and it's like that is not giving me anything. You are just trying to be basically being a glorified model. Yeah, um, but I. The expectations placed on this poor guy must have been enormous. And I think he actually, like, he has this sort of feline beauty. The way that that Anne Rice always described Lestat in the books was, like, he was sort of beautiful in a feline sort of way. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the sort of good looks that Stuart Townsend has. Mm -hmm. But there is zero charm. And, I mean, I'll... I don't I don't think he's not hot. I think the best thing he does in this film is be able to pull off leather pants, which it's is true. quite difficult. Yeah, I think that's true. That's yeah, it's fair. I had to think about this after you said it because <laughs> I'm very harsh <laughs> and unyielding uh, on Stuart Townsend, but he does look good. Uh he's not my type personally. Um and I think I, you know, revealed why earlier you know he's just not sad enough to me he's not he's just he's just not uh he could be a little bit more somber and melancholy but I also think you know yeah you're right there there were a lot of expectations on him but I I also just don't feel that he's a very convincing actor I mean I knew him at the time as Charlie's Charlie's Theron's boo which he was for a very long time I'm sure this man obviously has many, you know, he's a full person. I don't want to be rude to him. (laughs) But um, Stuart Townsend is, as far as I know, is not uh, a well-known, I I, I can't think of any other films that he's been in where he's even given a passable performance. I'd seen him in some indie stuff. Uh, There was a film that he did that was sort of like a a, a vague ripoff of Theorem uh, called Adam's something mm-hmm. oh and do you know what else he was originally mm-hmm. meant to be in lord of the rings oh, yes he was meant to that- be aragorn yes. he was meant to be aragorn and he got fired yeah <laughs> i'm very sorry i'm sorry about that too it's not funny that he got fired that's upsetting obviously it is upsetting although to be fair like come on he does not have the he does not have the capability to pull off the aragorn beard at all aragorn that is forgive me lord of the rings dance that's vigo right yeah that's vigo no there's no way Stuart townsend is doing that i'm sorry and i don't even love vigo mortison my problem with his version of Lestat is that actually, controversially, Kelly, mm-hmm. is that he is too sad to be Lestat. Really? I find him to be really mopey and emo. And as a reformed emo, I don't actually <laughs> have a problem with that. But, but, uh-huh. dude, chill the fuck out. Like, seriously, I don't think he's, I don't think Stewart is given a good enough script to work with. So I mm-hmm. do blame the script okay. in, in many, many ways. But 
just the mopiness is uncharacteristic of Lestat. Like you, he's the whole plot line with his diary, which oh, is taken yeah. from the book, but like the whole like, I am just walking through the endless darkness and I'm by myself. It's like, dude, these are bad emo lyrics. No. This is not Lestat. It's yeah. to Louis. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think that they try to imbue him with the characteristics of Louis in the absence mm. of Louis. Even though I think technically yeah. isn't Louis in Queen of the Damned in the books? Or maybe I'm wrong about that. He is briefly, but okay. um, this film is like an amalgamation of the Vampire Lestat, which is the, the second mm -hmm. book in the Vampire Chronicles, and okay. the Queen of the Damned, which is, I believe, the third. Okay. So it kind of picks and chooses certain things. Yeah. Um, And and I think mainly they, they brought it in so they can bring in the character of Akasha, uh, yeah. the titular Queen of the Damned. But there is... You know, like there's lines, and as I was rewatching it, I was taking notes, and these <laughs> notes are just he's yearning to be out of the cold, dark wasteland of eternity. I can't. That is Louis speak. That is Louis speak. <laughs> My boy Lestat would not do that. He would not say those words. Also, his lyrics, the oh, lyrics of his man. music. Oh, my, okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Let's get into it. So, like, the, the the premise of this film is that he wakes up because he hears some punk rockers and he becomes their front man. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I'm going to be your mother and I'm going to be your daddy and I'm going to be your front man and I'm going to make you famous and I'm going to sing in a vampire way. And then his lyrics are, <laughs> and I quote, why is everything so fucking hard for me? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Uh, you know, the lyrics just washed right over me because it's, <laughs> I mean, we should also say, you know, this film, the, the, it's performed by the frontman of Korn, um, mm -hmm. Lestat songs. And, you know, when I was 12, actually, that music was not, um, un, un displeasing to me. You know, I <laughs> I listen to corn. I love a bit of freak on a leash, but it but yeah. also it feels like an MTV elongated music video. Like that is what it's yes. giving me. Obviously it's very early 2000s. So that is just the vibe, but it's very of its time, which yeah. I kind of like because uh, yeah. I mean, I got to say the only redeeming feature for me of this film even on rewatch mm -hmm. is the soundtrack. <laughs> The soundtrack is okay. I I will take it. It brings up memories. Yeah, it's it's very two th early two thousands. It's very new metal. It's, it's very the nostalgia. Emo. Yes. Yeah. I think this is this is what I have to show you, Kelly. What? This is so embarrassing. I know you. I know you're gonna cancel me after this. <laughs> oh no! What is happening? <laughs> <laughs> so, in, for context, in lockdown one, I was doing some decluttering of my house. Yeah. And this is what I found. <gasps> so right now, Anna is showing me the Queen of the Damned soundtrack on CD. <laughs> For our listeners. This is, oh my goodness. An artifact. I'm, why this would is I a cancel 
cultural artifact. You, this is completely endearing. I I don't. I think am. That a, this is... I am borderline ashamed of myself. But why? I think that is fair. Look at the CD. Oh my gosh, iconic. The back of it. <laughs> I I. The back of it. Lestat and Alia in a bathtub full of rose petals. Very American beauty. <laughs> we love it. I love it. I think that this is great. I would never cancel you for this. We were 12. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> our taste wasn't as refined as it is now. I think we can give ourselves a break. We can give ourselves a pass. Okay, good. <laughs> I will throw it out after this conversation, though. <laughs> no, I think you have to keep that. That's <laughs> that is an artifact. You have to treasure. It forever. is. It's a historic. It's a historical artifact from 2002. <laughs> I love everything about this. <laughs> oh my gosh. We've talked about the music, we talked about Lestat, but mm. let's talk about Akasha, mm. who's played by the late great Aaliyah mm. in this film. Her last role. Yeah. One of the other things that I read when I was doing research for this was that she was meant to do a song for the soundtrack with the corn frontman, whose name I've now mm. has now escaped me. But was really when I read that I was my heart kind of broke again because I was like, that could have potentially been amazing on the, I mean, on the subject of, of Akasha, the thing is that, you know, I think the film really squanders this opportunity to really, you know, use this black woman uh, Mm -hmm. who is meant to be, you know, she's in the film. She's the Egyptian mother of all uh, vampires. Yes, she's the original vampire. Yeah, and and you know, horror cinema, um, as much as I love it, is has, has generally rendered black women invisible. Um, obviously, with like you know the black exploitation era, there were a lot of films about black women vampires. Yeah, you will have. We're recording this a little bit early, but you will have uh, tapped mm-hmm. into some of those with Ganja and Hess and so on. But. Um, yeah, there's a way that you can sort of like interrogate or use the vampire who has symboled and it, it symbolized and also is so steeped in, you know, themes of blood and displacement and diaspora. Mm-hmm. One of the things we didn't mention is that the vampire is often a um, figure of a, a sort of foreign import. Um, the vampire mm-hmm. often comes into a new land that is not its own um, by ship or some sort of vessel where they're being transported as mm-hmm. kind of almost cargo. But yeah, you could have you could have really used the that symbol to really interrogate all of the particular um implications that she brings in as a as a black woman. The film does not really do that. The film is much more interested in I don't know. I, I even, you know, I started that and I was like I don't actually know what the film is interested in doing with Akasha except giving her amazing outfits. Yeah, I think actually I I, I guess this is really a criticism not just of the way that they deal with the character of akasha which is so interesting you know the original vampire Mm -hmm. the the kind of the all-powerful and all consuming force that she is and she's kind of also transgressive in her own right at least on on paper because she can walk in the sun right she drinks from other vampires she has absolutely no allegiances and in the book actually she wants to kill all men and institute a, a matriarchal society that worships her as a goddess yeah. so they dispose of all of that as you were talking i was thinking like what is it trying to do with her and with the film in general i actually think it suffers because it's trying to be too cool. 
Yeah. It's trying to be too MTV. It's trying to tap into this both aesthetically and tonally into this early noughties MTV new metal vibe that actually is pretty empty, unfortunately. Yeah. It's it's not really saying anything. It's not paying tribute to the the film that came before it, which was huge. Yeah. It's not really tapping into the the talents of its performers mm-hmm. or really respecting any background or supporting actors. It's just trying to create as basically an elaborate music video that lasts for way too long. Yeah. So it's almost like I think trying to be cool but failing at it because it ultimately has absolutely nothing to say i think that's a really concise and and um uh extremely astute um way of naming the entire problem with this film which is that it just takes itself far too seriously when really it Mm. should be leaning into uh its camp (laughs) or at the same time something like blade which has come out i think maybe a couple of years before it is also Mm -hmm. kind of you know of this era and of this you know ilk it's very dark and gray and um very in a lot of ways you know blade is not mtv but it does have that kind of like we are very cool everybody's in leather it's very Mm -hmm. you know grunge inspired and heavy metal inspired and um there's a way to to have this film be very cool but also still feel very or i suppose it just needs a little bit more cynicism (laughs) because i think that it it has this real um yeah we're too we're too cool to be uh you know like those other uh vampire films when actually the other vampire films are are quite funny this film isn't funny at all do you know what i mean like there nobody is (laughs) is is even trying to like go for a, a performance that is fun it's not so it's not funny or even like nobody seems to be enjoying themselves um except Aaliyah. except Aaliyah. she's yeah yeah she's having a great time and she looks great doing it but um yeah it's it's a real shame that the film doesn't is it able to um grasp what it is about the story that it's telling that is actually so fun or or so interesting mm. that what makes what can make this a really unique or, or or singular text to adapt the film completely loses it you know it completely eludes it and i think mm. yeah that's it's unfortunate because actually the Aaliyah character could be so much more um rigorous in, in interrogating the bounds of the genre than it actually ends up being yeah absolutely and that character had so much potential in the page mm-hmm. and especially so much potential with Aaliyah playing it, playing the Queen of the Damned. Yeah. But I think the only really kind of curious thing that I noticed on rewatching the film uh, was the fact that it introduces quite explicitly sex into the dynamic. Yeah. Because as we were talking about before with Interview with the Vampire, it's very, uh, it's very implied, but it's never action. Yeah. And... It kind of in the Anne Rice, ver- in the Anne Rice vampiric universe, vampires actually don't cannot have regular intercourse with each other oh. because their bodies were. I texted you about this, Kelly. Did you? It was like literally- <laughs> I can't. We. <laughs> I feel like this was couched in something more outrageous or hilarious, and I missed it. 
<laughs> so basically, vampires are um, physically impotent, so they can't. They actually physically cannot have sex. Oh, which is sad. like I'm not saying that it's like the only way of having sex, yeah. but it's they have these like long centuries long romances and stuff and it's all very erotic but it's it's almost explicitly explained in passages in the books that like they're not their version of sex is very different from human sex and so in queen of the damned we get like as on (laughs) as on the back of the original soundtrack from 2002 (laughs) we get a sex scene between Aaliyah and uh townsend it's iconic it's great it is iconic and to the tone of Deftones track change in <laughs> House of Lies. I mean, this is a crucial contribution that we would not have had without you buying the soundtrack to Queen of the Damned in 2002. I predicted this moment you did. in 2002. I was like, I need this for the, for the audio content that I'm going to produce. This is excellent. Um, yeah, because... My one of the other things I wanted to to mention about Akasha as well is that you mm. know to, she and Stuart Townsend she and Lestat have just had sex and then the next day he betrays her. <laughs> the thing that you don't you know when you bring in a black woman and you cannot help but invite all of the historical and cultural implications of of black femininity in cinema, especially in American mm. cinema. Um, mm-hmm. And then the film ends with him being cured by drinking the blood of this white lady. <laughs> and I, that, that is very problematic. So you have to be trying to do some work. You know, you can't just, obviously Aaliyah was cast, I think in part because of the, um, you know, her, her musical background. Um, yeah. And that's, that's fine. But you know, but you also just have to be doing a little bit of work, right? And obviously mm-hmm. in 2001, yeah. I mean, still today in 2020, a lot of, of white filmmakers are not really bothered to be trying to do this kind of racial interrogation. But, you know, I, I realize that this is a film of its time. So, you know, the kind of woke politics that we have today are not necessarily mm-hmm. on their minds. However, it must be said that this is an extremely problematic dimension of the film when you once you have that. Because, you know, mm-hmm. what's happened is that she and Lista have had sex, but they've also sort of, in a, also in a very sexual, th- thematically sexual way, have sort of drank from each other. And yeah. she has, her blood gives him the ability to walk during the day. Mm-hmm. But he's also, uh, her blood is also like a, like a drug, um, which also is obviously very linked to the heavy metal scene and, and all that. But then you, oh, you have a, you have a... He describes it as... Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Her blood is like liquid fire. Ah, yes, that incredible uh, line of dialogue. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He did say that. Is that good? (laughs) Because I mean, when I heard him say that, I thought like, hmm, it doesn't sound appealing. (laughs) No. (laughs) But okay, Lestat, go off. Her blood (laughs) blood is like liquid fire. You would think that they would just say something like, you know, I guess nectar isn't like heavy metal enough, but at least make it sound appealing. <laughs> Whatever. So yeah. she, he drinks her blood. He becomes super powerful, but mm-hmm. he is also really evil. Or he had, and we should t- we should also, you know, we'll talk about oh, 
delve into that a little bit more like what is so evil about akasha because they never really make it clear what she wants Mm -hmm. to do but he drinks her blood he is aligned against the old guard and so therefore very threatening and dangerous and then he drinks the blood of this woman who's been stalking him but it's kind of you know a kind of romantic rival or a, a romantic a love interest for him but a rival to akasha um who commands him to kill this woman, this random lady, um, Marguerite Moreau, I think is her name. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, yeah he right. drinks her blood, and then all of a sudden he switches from Akasha's side to the side of these old established vampires. That includes the man who, at least in the film, not in the book, but in the film, who turns him into a vampire, Marius. Marius. Yeah. So it's it's a really interesting, you know. Um, switch that is not very fleshed out i mean the stakes of this film aren't fleshed out at all period but one of the through lines between interview with a vampire and queen of the damned is that women are inherently threatening and must be destroyed you know akasha meets the same fate as claudia that in that you know women and power seems to be an extremely dangerous equation in the framework of of at least these cinematic texts if not the source material no, I think I think it's really interesting that you pointed out and I haven't even thought about it that way because you're right, Akasha is like presented as this both alluring figure and also a figure of too much power. And interestingly, the thing that kind of makes her menacing just within the film, I'm not going to bring in the, the book into this, mm-hmm. is the fact that she drinks from both vampires and humans. Yeah. So she does not, she kills vampires as well as humans. So she does not respect that kind of uh, the superiority of of vampires over human beings. She just she just wants to kill everyone. Yeah, and I think that's the that's the only thing that we're given in the text of the film to perceive her as a threat. But first of all, again, the disrespect of dumping slash killing Akasha for the very basic groupie played by Marguerite Moreau. I mean, exactly. I. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying that men don't have this kind of questionable taste in reality, because that is a real thing. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's just, to me, fascinating, because also she doesn't really have a personality. She doesn't, this character also doesn't have a lot to do. She, Hmm. she discovers Lestat's, um, uh, diary thanks to her professor or her mentor and then she gets obsessed with him and starts stalking him and and yeah it's but she still listen none of these relationships are well written period um but theirs is especially awkward because do you remember there's mm-hmm. that scene where he she also asked him to turn her into a vampire yeah and then he randomly kills this lady who is already being attacked by another vampire, but he scares that vampire away and then feasts yeah. on her. And then he, there's this whole incredibly, uh, yeah, just awkward and weird scene where he's just like, is this what you want? And it just comes out of nowhere. It's like, we've gone from 10 to 2000 <laughs> and, <laughs> and like the span of a Let's second. not forget their Aladdin, I can show you the world oh. scene where he takes her and f- they fly over the city. I completely the forgot about that. Effects. Yeah, the special effects are on a whole nother level. It's very much giving me, you know, animorphs. I don't know if you yes. ever have, but yeah, yes. it's very, it's so bad. It's, it's terrible. 
It's so bad. I mean, I know it's the 2000s, but guess what else came out in the 2000s? The Matrix, the good X-Men films. <laughs> Those, so I mean, like, there. it's not like it was, it was always the pit. This is incredibly budget. Yes. And also, uh, I think a lot of the, the majority of the special effects budget was probably blown on the, the gig setting. Yeah. <laughs> and I gotta say, the only place where I believe Stuart Townsend was in his sauce is when he was lip syncing to <laughs> new metal songs, oh, yeah. wearing sheer goth clothing and kind of with fire all around him. I was, oh, great. You're fully embracing the MTV yeah. vibes it's here. It's the pyrotechnics. That's where they blew the budget. And yes. leather, leather is not cheap so <laughs> you have to oh like... i that looked like pleather that is not real leather for sure <laughs> they were probably sweating a lot <laughs> also on all the all the hyper like the white pigment that they had to put all over Stuart townsend because oh, he yeah. is shirtless for like 80 percent of this movie it's and true. they have to cover him up in white paint yeah that is to true. look like a vampire He's very pale in this completely unappealing i'm sorry alas well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I realize that you're attracted to Stuart Townsend. I'm not making any judgments. I'm just saying not for me. It's just not for me. Uh, I mean, I judge myself, Kelly. <laughs> I judge myself. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting that we've kind of been talking about how bad it is. Mm-hmm. But there's no good way of framing this. Kind of, How do you think this film tries and fails to expand the vampire world. An interview with a vampire, the whole thing is like trying to connect with other vampires. Whether it's in this one, we're given a lot of vampires and a lot of lore and a lot of backstory mm-hmm. and an origin story for all of them. But it still feels like it fails at giving us a coherent vampiric world. Right, because the project that it um, sets out for itself is one of, you know, mapping matrilineal genealogies which is you know again the female gothic project as well the thing the main thing that is happening in this film and also to an extent interview with the vampire is Mm -hmm. that these vampires who can live forever who are, are you know very aware of time are also very interested in history and and their origins and their context. At least some of them are. Um, mm-hmm. The film could have expanded the world that way um, because one of the things that you know we mentioned, we drew out about Interview with the Vampire is that what makes it such a fascinating and and really relatable film is that it is so much a a, a sort of intimate domestic drama that's about families. Queen of the Dam could have done that and, and just didn't. It completely fails at doing the one thing that it sets out for itself, which is to sort of explore this relationship between the new world and the old world. And weirdly, the conflict that it sets up as well is is very much that even though Akasha does represent this, you know, origin story and this, these ancient vampires, is that mm. she is still... And, you know, again, it's this is so complex because... She is a black woman, the first vampire, but she is still sort of destroyed by this old way, this very conservative body of vampires who find her to be dangerous and threatening to the status quo. These are things that are just, to me, so obvious that the film misses in its, (laughs) in the arc that it draws for itself. It's such a weird, it's just like, you know, we've already named what the problem is, is that they were trying to Mm. make a music video and not really a film. (laughs) 
and they should have just made a long music video. I mean, I just like, you can do that. (laughs) So many artists just do that. But yeah, it really misses the mark. And thinking about how to define a, or, or at least give texture to a world that we've already inhabited that we've already found really interesting, that has already, literally, the foundation has been set for you, for you to explore these different dynamics. And yeah, it just completely misses misses that mark. So I'm conscious then we can go on about mm. the flaws of this film <laughs> and the merits of Interview with a Vampire for hours on end, but I don't want to take up your entire day. <laughs> uh, I just want to mention... Did you notice those fake ass newspapers? Yes, yeah. Oh I my did. god. I I mean there are a lot of things. <laughs> I just It's just wild through was them. The editor. I mean who, who was actually working on this film? Who did like was did anybody come I mean obviously Aaliyah came to work. I still think Lena Olin innocent. Like she did what you hire Lena Olin to do, which is to give you gravitas and understated. Yes. You know, the other thing we also did at Mitchett, not to take away from these these horrible, you know, special effects and the, the fucking newspaper, but also that Akasha at the end of the film also is replaced as Queen of the Damned by another white woman again. And yes. I just like, I, there were just, there, the filmmakers on this, from the director to the editors, everybody head entirely empty. It just was like brain completely smooth. There were no thoughts happening whatsoever. Zero thoughts. <laughs> zero thinking. Zero context. Zero respect. Like, nobody thought this was it, even even in two thousand two. I mean, we'd had. I'm I'm almost certain this is around the time Halle Berry has is Catwoman by this time, right? There's so much stuff happening, so much progressive shit is happening, and they still weren't thinking. <laughs> well, Halle Berry won the Oscar in I want to say in two thousand one. She won. She won the Oscar in two thousand two because Monster yes. Monsters Ball is two thousand one. So yeah. this is the year that Halle Berry wins the Oscar. Yeah. The first black woman in a lead role yeah. to win the Academy Award. And this shit is also happening. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I'm not surprised. I'm not, I, I, I'm not even disappointed. It's just kind of mind-blowing how bad they were at every element and at every level of filmmaking, <laughs> of film production. Um, wow. It truly, truly is. <laughs> I mean, from the effects, the costumes, the total lack of context, the <laughs> absolutely hilarious script. Oh, gosh. I mean, this, the dialogue I, is terrible. I didn't write any of it down because I was just like, I'm so tired. <laughs> but it's truly... <laughs> Do you have more? I see. Oh, I have so much more. <laughs> okay, let me bring this up. I know this is shitty audio content, but for the purposes of this, I'm just like doing a dramatic reading of my notes from Queen of the Dam. Great content. Go ahead. I just uh, so uh, the Talamascan kind of rules is observe the dark realm, but be not of it. (laughs) Lestat says to what's her face, the groupie. Yeah. Tell me more about me. I could not at the line. Wait for it. 
And she tells him, I get you. I get you more than anyone else. No one understands you like I do. Which is exactly what you would think as a teenager who thinks that the lyrics of an emo band I meant exactly for her. This is this is fan fiction. This <laughs> is what it is. This is She not tells bad. him. <laughs> she tells him. And I quote. Uh-huh. You yearn. I literally I just, I I so uh, <laughs> it's not okay what has happened <laughs> actually now that we have revisited and are reevaluating, it's not right it's not it's actually egregious i think th- i think our conversation the fact that we're recording this mm-hmm. is the best thing to come out of this film existing that's true we have restored it in some way like it's okay <laughs> no. that the film existed because we can now have this conversation destroying it for having existed exactly yes we we could just sit here and do like a full dramatic reading of the script of queen of the damned because it is that bad and that hilarious and it would probably be a better film <laughs> than the film yes but alas, we do need to wrap up. Mm. Is there anything about either one of these adaptations of Anne Rice's vampires that we haven't discussed that you wanted to to end on? I just think that the major thing that she has given or con- contributed to the vampire mythos is the emotional vampire. And I think that is for good. That is, that, that is ultimately a good thing. Um. Mm. And the films that have, you know, come out since, I mean, they have very rarely, I think, risen to not, and it's not just about like, you know, the cultural status of Interview with the Vampire, but also mm-hmm. to that, you know, particular complexity um, that she mapped in that film. Um, because we should say, you know, Anne Rice also wrote the um, screenplay for Interview with the Vampire, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, double check. No, it's actually, um, it's an interesting point you bring up because it's it's kind of disputed. Oh. Because for, for legal and guild reasons, she was the one that needed to be quoted on that script. Oh. But it's kind of um one of the, I've, I've read that one of the conditions that Neil Jordan had was that he could write the script. Oh. So it's kind of implied that there was a rewrite by his part of the script. Okay. To what degree, to yeah, what no. extent... We don't know, but she is the only credited screenwriter for legal reasons. Okay, that's fascinating. I didn't know that actually. Um, I mean, but you know, it doesn't change. I think like the essential point that I I want to mm-hmm. make, which is that she, yeah, her her the source material I think begins a a a real very vigorous uh reckoning with what the vampire could could actually mean and what it what it could do how it could channel grief which is that yeah i think you know i've mentioned this before but it's it, it that is a a, a um a, a really powerful legacy to have taken mm. a character mm. that has been so long um glamorized and really use it to communicate something so yeah powerful a, a, about mourning and yeah, again, I just, I also do want to be very careful and respectful about, you know, making any sort of assumptions about how Anne Rice dealt with, dealt with her own grief. But yeah, I do think that you can sort of feel in Interview with a Vampire, at least, a kind of coming to peace or, or, or sort of making peace with death, even though 
it is a because you know louis is a character who sort of has to sort of sit forever in a condition mm-hmm. of of loneliness and and loss you know we didn't mention this before mm-hmm. but at the beginning of the film of interview with the vampire louis has lost his wife and child in childbirth he says something like i long to join them and the reason that lestat is attracted to him is drawn to him is because he is so loudly grieving and so longing for death. That in particular is just to me so emotionally um, resonant and enduring. And, and, you know, I said that I wouldn't make assumptions, but I will say that I do think it is a very, it's very clear that, you know, that kind of understanding is feminine. I I do think that is a very, Mm -hmm. that's a very female Gothic trait. Um, without prescribe, I don't, I actually, <laughs> I'm not crazy about having, you know, assigned certain traits to femininity. You know what I mean? But I like, yeah, mm-hmm. I do think that there is something about that that does read to me, at least, I, I will amend my statement to say anti-patriarchal, <laughs> which is to, yeah, really think about those somber things that are intrinsic to the human condition. And so, yeah, I think that that's a great contribution. Uh, the Queen of the Dam does not live up to um <laughs> what what uh she set out to do or, or seems to do seems to try to do um at least an interview with the vampire yeah it's it's just to me as i said one of the great uh american horror films that's that's excellent kelly thank you so much that's <laughs> thank you amazing thank you so much for all your time and the incredible insight and the laughs, Ugh, of course. We had to laugh because Queen of the Damned is <laughs> all you can do <laughs> with something like that is laugh. <laughs> well, truly. Um, and where can people find more of your work online, Kelly? So you can find me uh, on Twitter at Kelly, spelled K-E-L-L-I, Weston. And I've also written things for a movie notebook. I have written for film comment. Um reverse shot a bunch of little places um so yeah hopefully you'll find me more there thanks for having me that's it for this episode of the final girls podcast you can find us on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you get your shows if you can we are also over on patreon at patreon.com forward slash the final girls we are posting bonus episodes and we'll have more goodies coming up If you can't or don't want to support us, then please do take 30 seconds of your day and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. You can also find out more about what we do over on thefinalgirls.co.uk. Subscribe to our weekly newsletter of curated horror treats and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at thefinalgirlsuk. You can also follow Kelly and read her writing over at Kelly underscore Weston. And I am on Twitter at Anna B. Demented. Thank you for listening. And next week, we are staying put in the 90s with Guillermo del Toro's first film, Chronos, and the bizarre David Lynch-produced existential vampire film, Nadja.